Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the San Francisco State Alumni Podcast, GatorCast. I'm here with Neda Nobari, who is a special guest who has graduated from San Francisco State and is also now serving in San Francisco State in many roles. So I'm really excited to have her. And we have a number of accomplishments and items that we need to go over in her bio before we get into it. Neda is a San Francisco State alumna and around an American philanthropist, graduated with a bachelor's in science and computer science in 1984. And she immigrated from Iran to the United States in 1978 at the age of 15. And from 1985 to 2006, she served as a director and vice chair of BB Stores. Some of her notable accomplishments related to San Francisco State and otherwise are graduating with her bachelor's in science in computer science at San Francisco State, earning a master's degree in liberal studies from Dartmouth College in 2015, where she focused her research around the cultural identity of Iranian women in America. She established the Neda Nobari Foundation, which is now called Mosaic. The foundation is focusing on supporting organizations and initiatives associated with the arts, film, and education and service of social justice and cultural awareness. And she's also serving on the board for the San Francisco State University Foundation and is the incoming chair of the board. Now that's a lot. I try to put everything in, into a nutshell there with, with some of what you've accomplished in your life and some of the notable things that you're currently doing right now. And so I, I want to get into some of the topics, but Nada, thank you for being here for the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Mohammed. Of course. And so with all that to unpack there, I, I think we'll go over some of the topics and, and get started with just early life and your journey to the U.S. Just to get started, can we talk about early life and, and what was it like growing up in Iran before moving to the United States? Thank you for that incredibly generous bio. Made me sound like I'm 200 years old, but yeah, I was born in Tehran, but raised in Abadan, which is a city in the south of Iran and near Persian Gulf. My father worked for the National Iranian Oil Company, AKA British Petroleum before that. So we lived in this British colonial compound in the middle of the desert next to the refinery. And that's basically most of my memory of Iran before I left to come to US. When I was 13, my parents took me on a road trip from Yorkshire district in England. We drove all the way back to Iran and spent five weeks on the road. And that experience at 13 years of age, you can imagine how mind blowing it was. And I went back to Iran and I just kept dreaming of the bigger world that's out there and how much there is to explore. And then summer of 78, my mom's sister came to Iran to a visit. They had moved to California in 1976 after losing their daughter to cancer. So she came back after two years to pay a visit. And I saw her and I just like immediately knew she was my ticket out. I asked her if I could go to the United States with her and become not really replace her daughter, but be her daughter. And September 28th, that year, 1978, I was attending San Rafael High School. Considering the timing of the Iranian revolution, was there anything going on around you in Iran that made you worry about staying in Iran at all? Or, or was that not really something that you saw either from your physical point of view or from anything you saw in the media that made you want to leave as well? 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, I was 15 years old and I was pretty much sheltered in a very isolated community where I grew up. I wasn't even really experiencing the capital, Tehran. But a lot of people from my country have stories around how the revolution or the uprisings sort of was the point of embarkation and migrating to other places. But for me, it was directly unrelated to all of that. It just, it was more of a timing thing. I would say if it impacted me in any way, it was probably what my parents were thinking that things are unstable. Here's an incredible opportunity for her to go abroad to study while things are crazy, not thinking that it would be for life. So that probably gave them more encouragement to take that leap and let me go at that young age to come and live with my aunt and uncle. But the stories I've heard, they were mostly from my brother and sister. They were eight and 11 years older. They were in university. Universities are always the environment, you know, campus riots and protests. And so I would hear the stories from them mostly. That's where I got my news. Now you're in the United States. How did you decide that you wanted to pursue a degree in computer science and that you ultimately wanted to go to San Francisco State? Yeah, so the computer science thing really came from my older sister. There was a private university that opened up in Tehran in, I want to say 1976, maybe. It was the first of its kind university dedicated to computer science. That's all they taught. And my sister was, I think, one of the inaugural first-year students at this university. And thinking back in 1976, just the word computer was really sexy and fascinating. I always wanted to be just like my sister. So when I came to U.S., I knew I wanted to study computer science. I didn't know what it was, but that's what I was going to study. But like I said, I started in high school and after high school, I went to community college because I was still considered international student, and the tuition was exuberant. And by then, the war between Iran and Iraq had started in 1980. So sending money from Iran was getting exponentially harder year after year. So I went to community college and took the maximum number of units I could, advanced courses in calculus and physics and et cetera, and I transferred them to San Francisco State. Why San Francisco State? Well, CSU is all I could afford. There was really no other option. I applied to San Jose State. I think I applied to Chico just to have a few options. And because at the time I was living in San Rafael, San Francisco State, when I got accepted there, that was the best of all the options. So that's how I ended up there for my junior and senior year. Was there anything about San Francisco State? I mean, just thinking ahead to where you are now, where you're still involved with the university today in various roles. What brought you back to the university to take part in and be a volunteer and also be very involved with it with your time now? It's fascinating. When you're young, you're impacted by your surroundings, your environment, your peers, students, everything. And it doesn't necessarily register like this is the moment that you're being shaped and formed like right this minute it's happening 
And then later in life, when you're doing more of a reflection and you look back, then it becomes more obvious. That's sort of what my San Francisco State story is like. The common denominator is justice, social justice at the epicenter of the culture of this university. I had not experienced any other university. I just got lucky, I think, that from a value perspective, a mission, like we were just mission aligned from the beginning, from the way that I was raised and my family, the, just our family values. It was so aligned with what I was seeing at San Francisco State from the diversity. I mean, we didn't call them these words back then, but the inclusivity, the humanity, decency. It was just there. I don't know. It's like something you can feel in the air, little particles in other human beings around you. And, and of course there were always people making speeches in front of the student union. And I remember just being shocked that they weren't being arrested for saying whatever they wanted to say. And it was such a contrast to where I had come from. All that painted picture that becomes more clear later in life. That's great. So you graduated from San Francisco State going back in time now with your degree in computer science. How did you determine that you wanted to go into the fashion industry after getting a computer science degree? Can we talk about that a little bit going from programming? I know you did some computer science work and then you ended up in the business side in fashion. How did that come about? So yeah, I graduated in 1984 and I started interviewing and I got a job with a British communication company as a software engineer. I think my salary was like $36,000 a year and I thought it was so rich. And I started working. It wasn't what I had imagined. We have these fantasies about how work is going to be after we graduate. And it was so different. And I'm not going to lie, boring, sitting at the keyboard and just clicking away all day. Simultaneously, I met my husband and we got married and he had three stores. He had started in 1976, these boutique, fashion boutiques, and he was Watching me work, I'm a very hardworking person still to this day. It's just kind of part of the fiber of who I am. And he used to come and pick me up from work because I lived in, I worked in downtown San Francisco. There was no parking. I used to take public transportation. So sometimes he would come pick me up from work when I worked late. And then one day he just said, hey, how about you coming and working with me? And it was a scary thought at the beginning, but we decided to give it a try for six months and six months became 22 years that we worked together at BB. That's how I got into the fashion industry. But one of the first things that I had to do, again, this is 1984, this is a long time ago. They used to take the tickets off the garments when they would sell them and put them in like an envelope and send them to some service and wait two weeks to get a sales report. Imagine that compared to the kind of technology real time that we have. So my first job at BB was to figure out how to computerize the inventory management system and be able to get daily reports of what we were selling and what we had in stock and try to manage that inventory better. But, you know, I always say this computer science degree and just left brain sort of logic thinking 
and solution-oriented thinking, problem-solving. That's been a great foundation for me. And I think not unlike other tools like management skills or communication, I would say, these are certain things that you can apply to any field. You could be selling cheese or miniskirts. It doesn't matter. So I think that foundation really helped me grasp the idea of what this business was about. And my husband, now ex-husband, Manny was a great teacher and I was a great student and the combination was just, it worked. With the time that you spent with BB, what were some of the, like your fondest memories working there and what were some of your biggest accomplishments that you, you feel proudest about working at BB? I'm just thinking about this right now. It's a good question. The first thing that rises to the top immediately actually is my people skills. I feel like now companies have chief cultural officers. Back then it was just like the beginning of even concept of human resource. We didn't have a human resource department for years until we were forced to basically start one because our number of our employees kept increasing. And then we had legal liability to abide by the labor laws. And I have a knack for how I connect with people, how I can get a sense of commitment, collaboration, which to me is always built on the foundation of trust and respect and reciprocity, like any relationship. So one of the biggest challenges for companies, I mean, to this day, it's always human resource and that's human capital, really. You can do all the systematic checklists of your interview process. And nowadays they have sophisticated psychological assessments that they do on people and you, you do group interviews and try to get a buy-in from the team. You can do all of that and hire the right person. But if they don't feel like they're being appreciated, acknowledged, they're given opportunity for growth and development because at, at our hearts, we're all learners and we want to grow and we want to improve to show up for people when they're down because we all have those periods in life that things aren't just smooth. A lot of that, I'm just so happy to see those kinds of basic, they've kind of become the rules of the game now. A lot more companies are thinking that way and appreciating that human capital and the psychology behind people. It wasn't like that in the 80s. It was the era of in search of excellence and full move my cheese and like different time. And I think we've evolved a lot in that way, but I would say that would be my biggest contribution. It would be wrong of me not to ask about your experience with fashion and, and just since Phoebe was a fashion company and just how would you know what designs would work and with the change of seasons and styles over time and everything, how did you kind of get a sense of that to make sure that what you put into the stores was what people wanted to see and buy? The short answer, initially, I was the customer. I mean, I was 21 when I started with Vivi. I was the demographic that we were targeting. So it was just intuitive. What would I, out of this rack, what would I pick? So I was told that I had the eye to pick the winners. 
But I really think it's just because I related to the products because I was a customer. And I know that because later as I was growing older, it wasn't as intuitive. I had to sort of put myself in the shoes of this younger customer and times were changing and, and all of that. But it kind of started like that. And then we built a team. So neither of us were designers. Manny was a poli-sci major and he kind of just, it was learning by doing sort of process. So we hired designers. We eventually went vertical and started manufacturing all the stuff. But from a merchandising perspective, to have that crystal ball to figure out what's the next color or the next category or the next, it was really a group effort. I don't think any one individual realistically take credit for all of that. It was, they say it takes a village to raise a child. It took an enormous village for us to do what we did. Plus their forecasting services. I don't know if they're still around or not. I'm sure those have evolved too, but we used to get these packages about like the color story. This is why like sometimes people think, is it coincidence that everybody just decided to focus on purple this year? No, because at the source, there are these services that kind of tell you, well, the neutrals are always great. You can always count on grays and, you know, ivory and black and navy and olive, but you know, this year's highlight will be pastels. And then everybody kind of follows that. And then sometimes you just make really bad mistakes and you pay for it. And that's what markdowns are about. So I think the key is it always goes back to trust. Like if you can build a brand that your customers trust that you are more likely than not to hit it right. That if I buy from this shop, I've done it before and I've always gotten compliments from my friends or the stuff I buy here, I wear often. It doesn't just go sit in the closet and hang in there for months. It becomes this trusting relationship that I'm getting good value. I'm getting the right fashion. And it actually makes me look good. So trusting in the salesperson that's working with you who says, you look fabulous when you actually really look like you weigh more than you do and it's not really flattering for your body shape. Things like that makes a big difference in your following with your customers. The celebrity power. I mean, that was the beginning of that whole phase. Now that influencers rule the world back then it was one character in melrose place or some series on tv adopting our sexy little suits and that put us on the map you established the nato nobari foundation in 2007 what made you make the change to philanthropy what really drove that inflection point where you decided to go down a different path where it was more about serving others and, and trying to, to donate and make an impact in another way? Well, in the spirit of full transparency, I got a divorce and I had to leave the company. So my career of almost 24 years came to a halt and I had to figure out what I wanted to do. I sold a bunch of my company shares. And I was advised that this would be a really good time to take advantage of the IRS's credit 
for establishing a foundation. And that's what I did. I had no idea what it meant outside of the charity work that I had done all along in my life up to that point. I didn't really understand what a foundation's structure was, like how it works. I actually hired a consultant to show me the roadmap of this philanthropic sector. And then I practiced it on the ground as volunteer on boards and beyond just cutting checks for, I don't know, 12 years or something. And I learned how the system works. I did a residential program at Stanford for nonprofit leadership executive training program. It was like a little 12 day little MBA program for nonprofit leaders. Try to learn like the science behind it, the whole social entrepreneurship, like new language was, had emerged about what all this means. And I found it fascinating. It's supposed to be something like $600 billion industry. It is an industry and a lot of people work in this industry. And after practicing it for all these years, I kind of saw the, I don't want to say the flaws, but let's say the opportunities with exploring new ways of looking at philanthropy and private foundations. That's actually how I got involved with the whole investment thing. I started reading on people who were bringing under question, not the 5% minimum distribution requirement for private foundations, but what are you actually doing with the other 95% that's just sitting there? How are you investing it? What are your priorities in the way that you invest it? And what are their climate impacts? What is their human impacts? And that's how I was introduced to this concept of ESG, environmental, social, and governance filters on investment. And DEI later came with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Villanueva has a fantastic book on that. It was seminal in the way that I looked at this entire picture. So at that point, I gave up on, I don't know, I'm going to call it ego. I didn't want my name on it anymore. And I wanted a new identity for the foundation. My dear friend, Keely Badger, we met at Dartmouth. She had been the ED for the foundation. She was ready. We're having these transformational conversations about how to move forward and bring philanthropy actually under question. Just start questioning the foundation of what philanthropy means to most people in this country after a very active century of a particular form of philanthropy. And then my older son got involved and they came up with the brand and the focus on the arts. But really that's just a vehicle for us to model a new way of philanthropy, which is not grant seeking, sitting there waiting for people to send these grant requests and, and then the board or an entity decides who gets how much based on whatever and who's sitting at the table. We've changed that to a participatory model. We bring in community members. We actually give the money to other people to give it away. And in that process of flow funding, we bring communities together, like-minded individuals that work on certain focus areas. And the ripple effects of that community building exercise in itself, and then the discussions that happen, 
in terms of what organizations are out there, who's doing what, and how these dots get connected has been just the most incredibly rewarding and fascinating process for us. We're still new at it. It's only been a couple of years. And then, of course, we hit the pandemic and we've changed some of our um, focus to the arts because artists were hurting so bad. I know that digital art is becoming like a buzzword and, you know, NFTs are something that's being thrown around in the technology space and stuff. What have you seen with the artists that you've worked with in the foundation? Are they doing more of the traditional physical art or is it more in the digital art space? So definitely in the traditional mediums, but also something that grew out of this process for us was writing, art writing and poetry. and. We had submissions from videos to spoken words to, I mean, anything and everything can be considered a form of communicating artistically a message that you have. And our award cycles focus on themes like reimagining democracy or ecosystems. So it kind of pushes the envelope on because of our inclusive nature, we accept any form of submission for our awards. But because of the pandemic, we've done really this whole thing so far during a pandemic, set up these virtual exhibition spaces and change platforms. And the last one, I think it's a German company. It's really, truly fascinating what's going on with that, where you can go do an entire exhibition tour of videos and sculptures. And now they do 3D presentations on these virtual spaces. But to your point about the NFTs, I, I just, I find this whole cyber sort of intangible, non-real reality that we're that's emerging. I find the whole thing fascinating. I'm not an expert on NFTs from my little research, it seems like. It's supposed to democratize the profit of art so that there is equity in it for the artists as the art appreciates. And I mean, I'm excited if that's what it's about. Moving on to San Francisco State, I know we talked about a little bit about the roles that you've had and how you've been involved at the university. How has your involvement evolved over time. I know you mentioned that the value alignment was really key for you to come back to the university, but what's been the history and what's really been like the underlying theme to say, I've given some things to San Francisco State and this is the place that I want to keep giving back to over time because there's so many different areas you can give to different sectors, different universities, et cetera. And you've kept coming back to San Francisco State and then moving into the new role that you have as uh, the chair of the board, is it really this value alignment or what's reinforced it over time for you after coming back? That's a great question. Yes, San Francisco State is my alma mater and I do have emotional connections to the impact of this university when I was a student there so many years ago. But the bigger reason is my commitment to public education. That's where the common denominator with the social justice comes in. Having access to education and higher education is the game changer. 
for most people, unlike my own sons who could have gone to any university they wanted. For me at the time, as an international student, San Francisco State and the CSU system was still more affordable than any other option. I don't know what I would have had to do because I was already working full-time while I was finishing my senior year. I don't know what it would have looked like if I didn't have access to CSU. So public higher ed is key. And why San Francisco, beyond the fact that it's my alma mater, I love our community. I love the students. I love the questions they ask. I love the people they represent. I love their conscientious mindset. The fact that they're intentional, that they care. I feel like that's the best impact of my resources and it's not just money it's my time energy my experience my passion everything that i put in is for our students that's how much i believe in them and i know that they're change makers in whatever field they go in all we have to do is look at our alumni hall of fame whether they're photographers or they're biology majors or Whatever they study, there's always an angle of how can I be of service? How can I pay it forward? That is why I put in the energy for San Francisco State. If people want to get a hold of you, how should they do that? Should they go through the foundation, mosaicphilanthropy.org, and also to keep up with what you're doing at San Francisco State? How can they keep apprised with uh, the different activities that you have going on at the university? That's a good question. Probably through the university. I don't know if I have an email address for that, but also through Mosaic, mosaicphilanthropy.org. Those are both good options. Perfect. And with that, that's our episode for today's podcast, San Francisco State's GatorCast. Thank you. And I hope to see you all again. And that's our episode. Thanks for tuning in and go Gators.